man. It is uh, good to be with you all, and uh, like Justin said, we would love to get to know you if we don't know you. For those that we do know, um, don't talk to the other people that we don't know yet and tell them what they need to know. Just hold back. Uh, there are a lot of stories floating around about me running around with blue hair in middle school and high school, so don't, don't share any of that information. Um, anyway, no. It's good to be with you. Uh, my wife Kelsey's over there, and it's, it's so wonderful to be uh, surrounded by so many friends and family, um, and good to be with brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's sweet to hear from him, to hear from his word, and to be built up in his word. And so uh, with that, we're going to be turning to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 5. Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 5. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 177. Or under your seat there. I'll read the text for us and then we'll pray together. So Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 through 5. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan. All Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, we come before you today. We recognize our neediness, uh, that we are a people who hunger and thirst for you, first and foremost. But as, as Trevor stated, often our hearts are diverted, disoriented, we feel like we're in the wilderness, we're panting, and we're reaching out for things to satisfy our thirst and our hunger, and so often those are sinful things. And so, Father, forgive us. You see each of us intimately, you see the depths of our hearts, you know our frame, uh, you know the walk that we've had this week, this month, this year, uh, but Father, you are not a God of condemnation, but a God of freedom a God of peace and joy and rest because of the gift of faith in Christ Jesus. And so I pray that you would continue to minister to us by your Spirit as the Word goes forth this morning. Holy Spirit, would you do your work? Press upon us the truths of your Word, the truth that is your Word, uh, as we are shaped and, and molded more and more into the image of Jesus. We need endurance on this journey that we are on. And so I pray that you would help us to be led and to see the love that the Father has, uh, you, Father, have for us in the Son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, today's text deals with the end of a very long journey. And so we're going to be talking about the concept of waiting. What is it like to wait while you're on a long journey? Waiting confronts us. And it confronts the expectations that we have while we're waiting, while we are on a journey. This passage is the end of Moses' 40-year trek in the wilderness. 
And he's been waiting to get to somewhere specific to get into the promised land. And the way that Moses deals with his waiting, it reveals something about our hearts. And so we're going to kind of dig into his journey together. If you're taking notes, that's great. I'll give you some uh, ways to sort of keep this whole thing in line. Um, We're going to cover it in three points. The first point we're going to do is almost there. The second point is nowhere close. And the third point is already home. So almost there, nowhere close, and already home. So point one, almost there. We're going to look at our passage, make sure that we understand it in its context. So if you look there in your Bibles at verse 1, it says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan. If you had, uh, and some of your Bibles do have a little map there at the back, you don't need to turn there now, I can try to describe it for you, but if you had that map in front of you, uh, Moses standing uh, about 20 miles or so, from modern Jerusalem. Imagine pulling off of 29 into Coleman and then sort of climbing up the tallest grain. Ele- this is not how you climb. You climb like this. But you get to the top of the tallest grain elevator and you, you look out to the west and you can sort of see Madison. You're looking toward Madison. That's how close Moses got. He got to Coleman. Verse 2 goes on describing what Moses could see. He could see all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea. And so his eyes now, are they're taking in a, a panoramic view around him. He's seeing all that the Lord has blessed the people of Israel with. They're going to go in. Verse 3 goes on. It's continuing to describe this vast space. It says the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. He's seeing all that the Lord has promised to give to Israel. And so that's something that God is going to talk about, particularly in verse 4. He says, the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. And so now we hear God making reference to Moses' forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Part of the theme of the Old Testament is talking about this, this promised land. This is the land that has been very much central to the early message of our Old Testament. And God is saying, take it in, Moses. Take it in with your eyes. Enjoy the view. Because not only is this land going to be for the people that come after you, but it's going to be a full land. All of these descendants that are coming from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, they're going to fill up this land. It's going to be sweet. But then we hit one of the most bittersweet moments in all of Scripture, there in verse 4. God declares to Moses, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you're not going over there. You shall not go over there. And as I hear that, and I'm assuming as you hear that, it kind of does something to you. It hurts you a little bit. To look at the thing that you've been waiting for and then not get there. Not get to reach out and touch that thing. To hold that thing. To cross over the Jordan. 
into the promised land for Moses. And verse 5 says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. There's a big, what's going on here? What gives? What, what is God doing? Why, why would Moses go 40 years in the wilderness, climb up a mountain, and die? But if we look at this passage in its broader context, in the book of Deuteronomy, we shouldn't be stumped by God's actions, by how God is working with Moses. Even if you turn your Bibles back, just to a few pages to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 48. You can read with me there. That very day, that very day, the Lord spoke to Moses. Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel for possession. And die on the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel, at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there, into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. So there in Deuteronomy chapter 32, in verse 51, God has given two explicit reasons why Moses himself is not going over. He's not going to cross the Jordan. God said, Moses broke faith with me, and he didn't treat me as holy. Therefore, he's not crossing over. But what's this all about, this Meribah Kadesh? What did Moses really do? Was it that bad to hold him up at the edge of the promised land? Well, the Israelites were suffering in, in, a, in a lot of our Old Testament, the early part, the, the first five books, we hear about the exodus of the Israelite people, and we hear about their suffering, and yet God continued to be faithful to them. Here at this particular place, they were complaining to Aaron and Moses. They had been brought out, they'd been brought into the wilderness, but they didn't have any water to drink. They were getting very thirsty. <clears throat> I'm getting thirsty. But they started complaining. They started to think, wouldn't it have been better for us to have died or at least been slaves back in Egypt? And their complaints turned into Moses complaining. Not only in word, but in action. Where God had told Moses to command to a particular rock, bring forth water for the people to drink. Moses instead yelled at the people and he disregarded God's specific commandment. We read about this incident in, in Numbers 20, verses, verse 10. Moses says, hear now, you rebels, and he struck the rock twice with his staff. He didn't command it to bring forth water. He yelled at the people, and he struck the rock twice with his staff. Hear now, you rebels. And maybe it seems innocent. I think there are many of us who have wanted to say more than that in a particular time of frustration. But Moses' actions and his words are not innocent. They're mixed up. 
They're showing his own frustration with his people and his lack of faith in God. I'm not going to obey your command, God. You know what these people are like. And so he disregards God's perfect holiness. His breaking of faith has real consequences. He gets to Coleman, 20 miles away from the promised land. He's almost there, but he's not getting in. He's going to climb up that very day and die on Mount Nebo. And so we come to the end of our passage. And maybe this feels a little disheartening. What does it do to your heart when you think about being denied like that? Is this what Moses gets for 40 years? 40 years of waiting. 40 years of serving. He's called the servant of the Lord throughout Scripture. This man was faithful. One time, he said, here now, you rebels. And I know I've said worse than that. I know I've thought worse than that. But this is what God does in his justice. But we wonder, what, what, is, what is the point of this, God? Denying him entry. And so we move from our first point, almost there, to point number two. Nowhere close. Some of you here have been on a waiting journey for a long time. For college kids, maybe it's that first career or maybe it's the next career. Maybe you are praying and praying. Not only you, but other family members or friends, your church family, you're praying for somebody to come to know the Lord. A family member, a friend, a co-worker. Maybe a couple struggles to conceive for many years. Some people wait for a cure for 20 years, for 30 years, for 40 years. Some wrestle with a sin, and they think they'll always lose. They'll never come out on top. When Moses dies on Mount Nebo, it hits a nerve in the human soul. We know what it's like to wait, and then not to get the answer that we hope for. Just to take it in with our eyes, but to not go over there. This passage, though, it's not without logic. God is not just laughing and pulling the rug out from under Moses' feet. God's not acting maliciously. That's not the God that Scripture reveals. God is just. God is merciful. He had already redeemed Moses and Israel out of Egypt, right? Ten plagues. He got them across the Red Sea, parted the waters. He's fed them. He's gave them water to drink, and we read about it through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and into Deuteronomy. But God could not disregard Moses' sin. He doesn't just wink at him and say, attaboy, you can go over. This is a holy God, our holy God. This is how he deals with sin. Still, God was faithful to his promises. He gave the land of Canaan, the promised land, to the Israelites. And even more than that, God wanted to dwell with his people. And so what does he do? He establishes the tabernacle and then the temple. But probably most of all, he gives them a law. He wants them to be holy as he is holy. Back when our fingers were on Deuteronomy 32 there, God had said, just a few verses before we read there in verse 46, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it's no empty word for you, but your very life 
And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Did you hear that? That the law was the very life of Israel. By it, they were going to live a long time in the land. There's going to be no more waiting, no more hoping, just a welcome end to this 40-year journey that they've been on. That's not what happened. God graciously offers life through obedience in the land, and God promises blessing. What does he say? I'm going to give you lots of little Israelite kiddos. They're going to run around, and you're going to have fig trees, and you're going to have grapevines that you didn't plant, that you didn't tend. And I'm going to drive out your enemies from before you, and yet Israel wasn't satisfied. They get over with Joshua and the rest of the people, and what happens? They turn to other gods. They start gobbling up all the foreign nations and practices. They start turning into them. They, they marry when they're not supposed to marry. They become more and more corrupt. God gives them judges to try to straighten them out, to try to reorient them. They don't care. He gives them kings, even good kings like Solomon and David. Doesn't matter. They don't want a king. And so what happens after they come into the promised land? They're not there very long. They're exiled. They're taken back out, and they're forced to wait again. But this time, they're waiting so far from the promised land that they could have climbed any mountain, any day, clearest day, and they wouldn't have seen a thing. That promised land was a memory, and that's all it was. They were nowhere close. Their problem wasn't only that they needed to get in, but they needed the power to stay in. And it speaks to something in our own heart. You see, you're waiting even when your expectations are filled. It does something to you that you probably have a hard time admitting. Spring is coming. Yes, it really is. It's been spring every day in California. Uh, spring is finally coming. And uh, with spring and summer, some of you are anticipating vacations. Maybe you're, uh, you've got your uh, mindset on going camping or you're going north or south, wherever you're going. You've been waiting to do this thing. You and your family, you and your spouse, you're going with some friends, whatever it might be. But the same thing happens after every vacation we go on, every new experience. Maybe it's a favorite meal even. You can condense it down that small. What do we say as a human people? I can't wait to do that again. I can't wait to do that again. I, it, was, it was so great. Let's just do it again. And maybe this is kids. You can think about kids being on a, a theme park and going on the roller coaster over and over and over. They never get tired of it. We don't get satisfied. Waiting unearths the fact that we're not content with any relief that our hearts find here on this earth. We have a hard time being satisfied. And whatever you're waiting for, while you're waiting for it, you sin. Moses failed to uphold God's righteous commands. So did Israel. So do you. And while we're waiting, we feel like there's a microscope pointed in on our hearts. And it reveals the simple fact that we can't be satisfied. We're so unsatisfied, even when 
we've held on to the thing we've been waiting for for so long. And so we start to cope with the dissatisfaction, with unmet expectations, or just the long season of waiting. We start to engage in, in secret sin. Maybe we start to store up a little bit of bitterness, a little bit out of time. Maybe we move toward anger. There are some here that pray for patience every day. But what does a prayer for patience reveal? But that we're an impatient people. It reveals that we need something more. And our waiting is real and deep, right? It probably goes beyond just vacations or baseball games, sun-filled days. Maybe you've been waiting for an apology for years. Maybe you've waited to have a spouse. Maybe you've waited to hear an all-clear from an oncologist. But while we wait, our hearts don't always rejoice. We grumble and we complain like the Israelites without water. We move to distrust God and we start to sin. Our sins are never minor either. The, the book of James tells us that one, one infraction against God's perfect law is worthy of breaking the whole thing. And then Romans comes alongside of James and tells us that all of our guilt under God's law brings death. Death, condemnation, hell, these aren't really fun concepts to talk about. But they're real. They're weighty. And they're the product of our sin. And so we start to see in the mirror an Israelite looking back at us. We're exiled. We are looking for hope. We're looking for home. But we're not innocently waiting around and wandering in the desert. Your heart is in rebellion sometimes against God. If we were like Moses, we would have said, you know what, I actually prefer the wilderness. I prefer these jackals. They're friends. I've made friends with the jackals. And I love the brutal, unending thirst. It's my favorite part of the day. Friend, if you are waiting, and you have not trusted in the righteousness of Christ by faith, please hear me. The Lord will not sweep our sin under the rug. When you're waiting and you are rebelling against God without trusting in Christ and his righteousness, there is no sweet end to your journey through this life. When the end comes, there will be no promised land awaiting you. But hear me, it doesn't have to be that way. God is saying, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Before Moses died, God took time to reassure him of the promises of old to Abraham and his descendants. Even more, God brought to mind the singular fact that Moses' eyes had seen the promised land. His faith had become sight. He had taken in the promised land. He had trusted the Lord to see him through all his days. And God was faithful in, in giving Moses great faith. Our New Testament tells us all about Moses and his faith. Hebrews 11. It puts all of Moses' life under the banner of Christ. Faith in Jesus. God is calling us to faith again today. Put your faith in Christ because God was faithful to his promises to Abraham. That same promise he reminded Moses of. God demonstrated his faithfulness in Christ. Instead of Israel and Moses and their impatience, we needed somebody who would wait perfectly. Instead of Israel 
and Moses' sin? We needed someone perfectly righteous to go into that land beforehand after obeying all of God's law. We turn to our New Testament, to Galatians 4, 4 through 5, and we hear these wonderful words. For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We were those that were under the law. We were enslaved. We were waiting like Israel. We were scanning the horizon for the promised land. Yet the fullness of time came in the days of Jesus. This was God's plan, his redemptive plan in history. And not only did Christ wait perfectly, but 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that he became sin for us. Christ was treated as a lawbreaker. Christ was treated as a complaining Israelite. Christ was treated as a sinner, unsatisfied and distrusting, so that we might come to know the forgiveness of sins through faith. Paul sort of wrapping up this argument in Galatians, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There's that promise made to Abraham again. God is fulfilling that promise in Jesus. And because of that, you don't have to be on this journey without hope. You don't have to wait without hope. And so we move on to point three, already home. Friend, if you've been waiting and waiting and waiting, waiting on its own is not sinful, nor are expectations, right? We all long for things. We all hope for things. And I want to be excited about spring and summer, about planning stuff, about ball games, about taking in some sunshine, playing golf. But God is dialing in on the singular question while we wait for those things and while we wait for greater things. He's saying, what are we hoping in the most? And before we answer that question, I want to reflect for a moment on Moses' life while he waited. Back in chapter 32, where we read, Moses was given his death notice. This very day, Moses, you're going to walk up Mount Nebo and you're going to die. You've got a very short time to live. Moses, the thing you hoped for, the thing you've wished for, the thing you've waited for, I'm going to show you a slice of it. But you're not going over there. Those words ring so true in our lives because we know what it's like to wait for something, to long for something, and to also know as we get older and older that everything we've waited for, everything we've hoped for, all of our expectations, they're not going to be met. But everything that you need is an entirely different story. That's a whole nother category. Everything you want over here, it's a big pile. It changes, it grows, it morphs. And a lot of it is left unmet in this life. But everything that you need, friend, Everything that God has for you, that's already yours by faith in Christ Jesus. 
when Moses hears his death notice, does he throw a fit? Scripture records something striking between chapters 32 and chapter 34. Moses prayed. He prayed and he said a lot of stuff. and We don't have time to look at his whole prayer, but he did say things like, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. He doesn't sound like a guy who just was told he's going to die in 12 hours or 18 hours or however long it took an old man to walk up a hill. He's not bitter. How can he, how can he be like that? He'd seen the Lord faithfully bless him. Even when he was on death's door. He had a memory. A memory that the Lord used to remind him of God's own faithfulness. He's not even supposed to be alive. This is the same boy that was in a basket floating down the Nile River. Raised up in Pharaoh's house. He brings the Israelites out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. And even now with his eyes on Canaan, his hope wasn't in the land. It was in the God who gave the land. Psalm 90 verse 1 records Moses' words. And what does Moses say? God, I demand the promised land. If you don't give me the promised land, oh, you're going to be sorry. What, is, what does Moses say? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Through faith, Moses was home in the Lord. Through faith, you are already home in the Lord. Take this to heart, brother and sister. That waiting and journeying requires us to keep our minds active. We're going to see ahead, but we can't forget God's faithfulness in the past and His promises that go with us every step of the way. We can pray like Moses even when there are hard circumstances ahead. That doesn't mean, though, that we just gut it out, right? Put a little dirt on it. Cry it out. You don't have to disregard the places of hurt and suffering along the road. We can cry out to God in our waiting, and we should. Lamenting with hope is probably a lost art in the Christian church. But it's something that God addresses and gives us words for. It's a healthy part of the Christian life. Psalm 22, the same words that Jesus took to his lips on the cross, he gives us those words to cry out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. God knows what it's like for us to live a waiting lifestyle. To be disappointed, to not have everything that we wanted. And to cry out and to ask God, why? And we reflect on these words that Jesus himself took on the cross. And I'm sure that they weren't just his words, but also the disciples' words. Just last week, we were forced to think about waiting again. What would the disciples have thought? Three years of being called into ministry behind Jesus, following after him thinking about this kingdom to come, thinking about, oh, finally these Romans are going to stop bothering us. It's going to be awesome. Where am I going to be, Lord? Am I going to be on your left hand or your right in your kingdom? And then their exalted leader is crucified. 
And Friday night, nothing happens. And Saturday morning, they wake up, and I don't know what a normal Jewish breakfast looks like, but they eat their breakfast, and they probably cried. And they kept on crying throughout the day and asking each other, what's happened? What's going on? Why are we, why are we doing this? Why, why did he make us wait? Why are we outside of the promised land? Jesus was taken off the cross, and all their waiting seemed like it was for nothing. But God gave us a demonstration of his love, of unending blessing, and of new creation in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. He grants us that same resurrection life and hope by faith in Jesus. He gives us what we truly need, and that's what he wants us hoping in. It's a hope that says the greater promised land, being uh, alive with Christ forever in eternity, that's yours through faith. Our sin, it deserved the wrath of God, the extinguishing of all hope. You're not supposed to be in a promised land. You're supposed to be in a cursed land. But God, by his grace, made us alive together with Christ. He showed us our greatest need, and then he gave us our, his son that we might be truly satisfied, even here and now, while we wait. Perhaps in light of Easter, we can remember that our resurrected Savior said he'd return. He wouldn't leave us. One day he will come back, and we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But he continues to assure us of his presence by his Holy Spirit. And in the church and by his word, he aims us back again and again to drink from that living water. We need Jesus every week, every day, every hour. The thing we really need, it's, it's not just some small journey, the vacation to the Black Hills. Maybe you're waiting for the Vikings to win the Super Bowl. You're going to keep waiting, but there's something that you really need, and that's Jesus. And so our posture now, it's like Moses. We can pray, we can cry out, and we can reflect on God's faithfulness to us as we lean on each other. When I was 16, my family took a long road trip to Canada in an RV. And if you want to know how long it was, you can ask my sister Jill. She experienced two 16-year-old boys uh, for three weeks in a small RV. It was great. Here's the thing about RVs. You've got kids asking the question, are we there yet? Teenage boys who felt like we were probably nowhere close, either to our destination or getting back home. And then you've got mom, dad, grandma, knowing that we are already home. An RV is a little picture of the church. These spiritual brothers and sisters that you're sitting next to, moms and dads and grandma and grandpa in the faith, we're called to point each other continually toward that next horizon. We're almost there, and we're already home. Even when some days it feels like we're nowhere close. And so Christian, you can't escape it. Your life is a life of waiting. So let me put a question to you for reflection. What are you doing with your waiting? Think about that today. Think about, this, think about it this afternoon. 
this week? What are you doing with your waiting? By faith, you've been granted eyes that are trained to look for the promised land. Everything you need for the journey and for the crossing over has already been granted to you by faith in Christ. The forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ, and an eternal, unfading, imperishable inheritance. All yours through faith in Christ Jesus. You are already home. Let's pray. Father God, you are good and kind to remind us that our waiting is not purposeless. That even though it's difficult and even though our, our priorities and our hearts get skewed, placed on the wrong things, we become sinful and, and bitter and angry. It's not our own work or our own um, keeping, not our own ceasing from sin that gets us into the promised land. It is believing in the one whom you sent to bring us in with him. Believing in Christ Jesus who paid for our debts. Who gave us his righteousness. Would you grant us endurance as we continue to wait together? Would you cause us to lean on each other as we wait together? Would you cause us to cry out when our hearts are broken? When we are suffering? And we feel like we can't take another step. Would you cause us to wait and to continue to pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.